chapter eight of between the larch woods and the weir this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox recording by kathleen between the larch woods and the weir by flora glickman chapter eight cold snap for a couple of days the sun was radiant and the air actually warm we agreed with each other that italy and the south of france weren't in it we decided gardening with all the zest of backwoods women who know that the only vegetables they can hope for are those they themselves grow unlike the majority of londoners the war had not added much to our knowledge in this direction i had not owned a house in the country for many months before i learnt the value of first-hand home production hence when the allotment fever set in we were quite able to keep pace with the rest of the world despite our failing intellects the only thing that differentiated us from the remainder of our fellow-citizens in the metropolis was the fact that we appeared to be the only ones who did not feel themselves competent to bestow unlimited information and advice in season and out of season to all and sundry on every imaginable and unimaginable point connected with the raising of food crops one of the many reasons for the charm that envelops our life at the hillside cottage lies in the fact that it brings us much closer to the fundamental principle of keeping alive than is ever possible in town with its over-civilization of course it isn't desirable that our mental and spiritual interests should centre in the question of what we shall eat and what we shall drink and wherewithal shall we keep warm and comfortable but i think a woman suffers a distinct loss when she eliminates these matters entirely from her horizon i know from personal experience that there comes a period in our lives when we women feel that there are much higher enterprises beckoning us that we individually not collectively are called to do some work in the world that is far greater than seeing to meals and keeping the household machinery moving unobtrusively and with regularity but it is fortunate that there eventually returns to us if we are properly balanced a realization that some of our very best work can be put into the making of a home and that far from it being narrow and sordid and selfish to devote a large part of ourselves to household administration it is in reality one of the widest spheres that a woman can choose and one that will give her the biggest scope for bringing happiness and strength and health to others and after all isn't that the avowed aim of the most advanced of modern feminists still i admit that our cramped surroundings and jaded strained existence in cities do not always make a round of domestic duties seem alluring to the woman who has to cram her belongings and her aspirations into a small modern flat or who has to do her cooking in one of the unhealthy sunless basements that prevail in the older houses in towns a woman needs fresh air sunshine and a garden if the best is to be brought out of her oh yes i know some women have done great things without one or another of these items but probably they would have done still more if they had had the opportunity to come to their full development under more favourable circumstances i'm not surprised that women whose existence is limited by the narrow environment of towns 
so continually beat the air with a longing to do something more than seems possible in the flat or dull suburban villa civilization has taken out of their hands so many of the useful occupations that formerly kept women busy and worthily busy too and it is not to be wondered at that they cry out for something to do and invent causes on which to expend their zeal and energy the preparation of food the laundry work and indeed most household duties are now done for us in cities on the penny in the slot principle only we have to put a shilling in the slot as a rule for the pennyworth of result that we receive and it is small wonder that so few of us can work up any interest in the process but how are matters to be altered you ask me i don't know pray don't think i'm proposing to find solutions for grave problems in these stories i'm only giving you a record of facts just simple everyday little happenings of no value to anyone save the owner and we'll leave it at that if you don't mind and return to the garden before the war labor was not so scarce and there was no need for us to plant the vegetables ourselves unless we desired to do so now however one's own personal work was a valuable asset and we put our backs into it at least ursula and i did virginia was engaged most of the time in describing the sort of tools she would make if she were in that line of business to obviate the grave spinal trouble she was certain she was developing i don't mean to imply that virginia isn't a good gardener she can be an excellent one when she likes for she knows what gardening really stands for in the way of hard work whereas some of my would-be assistant gardeners seem to think the chief requisites are a comfortable hammock and a book or at most a pitcher muslin frock and a pretty basket and a pair of baby scissors such girls remind me of many who write and inquire if i have a vacancy for a sub-editor in my office the chief qualification stated in their letters being that they do so love to browse among books virginia isn't like that she puts on a business-like garb and knows and annexes a good tool when she sees it but it is her bright ideas that are the hindrance to progress she wasted ten minutes that morning explaining to me that she was sure if i would only have turnips planted in the mint bed it would be another war economy as the mint flavor might permeate the turnips and thus save double expense with lamb and then another ten minutes went in enlarging on the grasping nature of the makers of gardening gloves in not supplying four pairs of extra thumbs with each pair since any intelligent gardener could wear out eight thumbs with one pair in the simplest day's gardening she offered to let me use the idea free of charge in my magazine if i would undertake to keep her supplied with gardening gloves for the rest of her natural life but she stipulated that they must be proper leather ones not the four and sixpenny war variety she was then wearing composed of unbleached calico with merely a chamois postage stamp stuck on the front of each finger and thumb in the intervals of conversation she aided us with our digging yet in spite of the national call to spend as much on seed potatoes as would keep the family in vegetables for a couple of years we continually found ourselves drifting away from the ground we were trenching for the violets were already out also some early primroses 
and little white stars were showing on the wild strawberry trails in sheltered corners under walls that faced south and the garden is full of sheltered nooks despite its being so high up as the ground slopes towards the south every wall that props up the garden and there are so many like giant steps down the steep hillside gives protection from the cold winds to the little growing things that nestle in every crevice and on the ground below everywhere the pennywort was sending out clear green discs from the mysterious depths of crannies in the wall crocuses were showing orange buds in the garden beds one precocious pansy held up a white flower streaked and splashed with purple spring has really come we all chorused and oh how good it seemed to be done with the winter such a winter too surely the longest and most awful winter humanity has ever known with spring and summer immediately before us as it seemed we decided to leave the trenching just for that day and explore the lanes and woods the lichens and mosses were at the height of their beauty a beauty that would fade once the sun got any power the wall stones were splashed with browns and greys rust colour and orange black and olive and one particular lichen that is our especial joy tints the stone a milky pea-green shade that is unlike any other colour i can recall last year's bramble leaves were purple and scarlet and crimson and yellow where the small ivy creeping up the walls had been touched by the frost it had turned a vivid yellow mottled with warm brown and crimson and it is surprising once you take note of it how much crimson is used by nature where you would expect to find only green and not merely a dull red it is a brilliant vivid carmine that is dropped about in quiet unsuspected places lighting up dark patches emphasizing sombre details that one might otherwise overlook we were turning over a handful of brown leaves under an oak tree in the wood there we found the streak of crimson showing inside an acorn that had just burst to let out a young shoot that was seeking about for root hold below and light up above not only one but hundreds of similar brilliant touches were scattered about where the fertile acorns lay among the moss and last year's fern in one secluded spot where the cold had not been severe enough to wither last year's foliage on the undergrowth long sprays of ground ivy climbing over a fallen branch had turned to deep wine colour stems and all and lay as eileen said beautiful enough for one of them lovely wreaths of leaves they put round best hats certainly it looked more artificial than natural if one didn't happen to know that ground ivy often takes on this tint in its declining days thanks to tennyson we all know that rosy plumelets tough the larch but it doesn't matter how many times you see them they are always worth looking at and marvelling at again and there seems no limit to the crimson splashes is there anything anywhere that can compare with the herb robert its leaves far more radiant than its blossoms or the leaves of the evening primrose when they start to fade at the bottom of the stem or the waning foliage of the sorrel to make a list of the crimson touches 
as distinct from the reddish brown that one finds on stems and foliage any day in the country would be a revelation to most of us though the sun had been so bright when we started it doesn't do to trust too much in an english spring and we presently noticed a very decided change the temperature dropped with great rapidity as clouds came up and hid the sun and the hills that towered about us suddenly loomed gloomy and forbidding the wind veered round from southwest to northeast and by evening it was piercingly bitterly cold taking a last look round with the lantern before we locked up for the night not a sound could be heard everything was absolutely still with that unearthly silence of a land suddenly gripped by overpowering cold i glanced at the thermometer hanging on the outside wall it already registered three degrees below freezing it would probably be ten before morning we bolted the door and shut out the cold hoping no one was wandering lost on the hills that night not that anyone ever is but it is pleasant to have kind charitable thoughts like that on a bleak night as you put yet another log on the fire next morning as it was colder and more perishing than ever i decided to cope with several days arrears of office work piling itself up in all directions virginia said it was just as well the weather necessitated our remaining indoors as she could now get on with her work of course we asked what work she informed us that she was engaged upon an anthology shakespeare and the great war she felt that shakespeare and everything else had been done pretty thoroughly by less competent people than herself it is true but all the same the poet had been dealt with exhaustively from every point of view but that of the war also the war had been dealt with in extenso from every point of view but shakespeare's hence her present literary effort and would i kindly give her any quotations i could think of that had any bearing on this world crisis all my brain was equal to was tell me where is fancy bread which undoubtedly indicated that the war loaf was known to pall on the public taste even in shakespeare's time she said she had expected me to say that it was so obvious nevertheless i noticed she hurriedly jotted it down we asked her to read her m s so far as she had gone it seemed a pity for us to overlap i've made a fair start she explained but the trouble is they all turn out so awkwardly for instance the first quotation i have down is she riseth also while it is yet night and giveth meat to her household anyone can see daylight saving there naturally i opened my mouth to speak but she cut me short testily of course i know as well as you that it isn't shakespeare at least i wasn't reared a heathen but that's just the tiresome part of it every quotation i think of isn't shakespeare at all here's another that would do beautifully and take up a nice bit of space on the page too the upper air burst into life and a hundred fire-flags sheen to and fro they were hurried about and to and fro and in and out the wan stars danced between even a child could tell that they were the searchlights trying to spot a zepp only it isn't shakespeare it's very worrying yet i know if only i could get the book done 
there would be a fortune in it w s always sells and he's so respectable too i said i was sorry my office duties had prior claim on my time and i urged ursula to do her sisterly part but she said she couldn't be bothered just then her mind was more than fully occupied in trying to lay the blame for everything on the right person so i took virginia's m s and read it down how full of briars is this working-day world this proves that barbed wire entanglements were known in the seventeenth century how far that little candle throws his beams this indicates clearly that shakespeare was fined for failing to comply with the lighting restrictions that he was compelled to pay war profits out of the royalties on his plays is evidenced by these poignant words in macbeth knots had all's spent and doubtless there was a subtle reference to war taxation in age cannot wither nor custom stale her infinite variety the unfailing hold of shakespeare on humanity is the fact that he touched upon all phases of life this sentence was virginia's own literary contribution to the anthology for example she went on even a sugar shortage was known in his day to what else could he have been referring when he wrote sweet are the uses of adversity and can any one doubt that double double toil and trouble fire burn and cauldron bubble points to meatless days here we are interrupted by a knock at the door it was miss primkins an elderly lady who lives by herself or at least with rehoboam her cat in a pretty little cottage further down the hill miss primkins has been hard hit by the war but no matter how she has to skimp and save in other ways she never relaxes her work for the wounded and it was about her contribution to queen mary's needlework guild that she came up to consult me not that we started there straight away of course not we talked about the shortage of sugar and the high cost of boots and the scarcity of chicken food and the price of meat and the difficulty of knowing how to feed rehoboam adequately and yet in strict accordance with official regulations and the colour of the bread and what are we coming to and other topical matters like that then when i had pressed miss primkins several times to stay to our midday meal and she had as many times assured me that she must not stay another minute grateful though she was for my kind invitation as she had put on the potatoes to boil before she came out she produced in an undertone a paper parcel from her bag and with much hesitation explained that she wanted advice on a private matter i was all attention undoing the paper she displayed what looked like a round bolster case made of pink and blue striped flannelette as she held it up for inspection it flared at the top to use a dressmaker's term with merely a small round opening at the bottom i glanced it over as intelligently as i knew how and then inquired what it was it's a pajama for a soldier she murmured modestly in a very low voice i've cut it exactly by the paper pattern yet miss judson who saw it yesterday says she doesn't believe it's right we've neither of us ever made one before so i thought i would run up to you with it you would be sure to know er hm ah uh, yes i said as light dawned it's all right so far as it goes but where's the other leg 
the other leg she echoed there was only one in the pattern of course but you should have cut it out in double material the garment requires two legs you know does it she exclaimed in genuine surprise why i thought it must be intended for a soldier who had had his other leg amputated before virginia put away her anthology preparatory to having lunch she added another quotation to her list for never anything can be amiss when simpleness and duty tender it and against this she scribbled one-legged pajama doubtless for elucidation and amplification at a later date i hope i haven't forestalled her End of chapter 8